My name is Paul. I am one of the pastors here at The Journey, and like Pastor Tom said, we've been in a little series here called Welcome to the Journey, a timely thing as we've launched our second campus. One, because there are a lot of new folks here, uh, and if you're new to The Journey, this would be a great introduction to what we are about and aspire to be, and if you've been around for a while, we hope this series will be a, a helpful refresher, and I think a timely one. Uh, so last week, Pastor Tom brought us back eight years ago to when he and a, a small team of folks kind of dreamed together and with God about what he might have this new church be about in the city of Worcester. He talked about the origins of the name, the journey, that we're kind of invited by Jesus to walk with him on a journey through our lives as he calls us into life in the kingdom. In the next three weeks, we're going to talk about our three core priorities as a church. This is something that that original launch team came up with. They felt called to plant a, a simple church, not an overly complicated organization, and landed on three priorities that really flow out of Scripture, as I hope we'll see. And these are still our same three priorities as a church. It's helpful to know that as we've now expanded multiple locations, a much uh, bigger and broader church, but it's still the same three key priorities. And they are worship, which we'll talk about this week, the first priority. Next week, Pastor Lou will talk about generosity. And in a couple of weeks, Pastor Tom will talk about community. Uh, from the beginning until now, these are our three core priorities as a church. And you know, the expressions of these things are, are getting varied and, and take on a whole bunch of different forms, but it still all comes back to these three things. And the first is worship, which we'll talk about today. And when you hear the word worship, I, I wonder what comes to mind. Uh, a lot of times it can be overly simplified. Sometimes we think of worship and we think of going to church or going to a house of worship, a place of worship, kind of like this one. People have been coming here to worship for over a hundred years, we think about gatherings like this, activities, or perhaps what we were just doing, kind of the, the worship portion of our time together where we sang songs and, and there was a musical component to it. In fact, worship music has become such a huge industry that sometimes worship and a certain kind of music get equated. Um, and like many things in our culture, worship music is now a, a commodity, really, for our consumption. And we have personal taste. So I like that. I don't like that one. We have our own personal playlist, that sort of thing. Well, worship, I hope we'll see today, is a whole lot bigger than those things. It most certainly does include gathering like this. It includes music, as we'll see. But so much more. In fact, worship is really a life that we're called to, a lifestyle we're going to talk today about the heart of worship, the what of worship, and the why of worship. So to get into the heart, I want to turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles that's provided, it is on page 718, or you can open your own. This is one of those passages that really does kind of get at the heart of things. The context here is that Jesus is being repeatedly challenged by different people who are trying to engage him in debates and, and controversial conversations, maybe to try to poke holes in what he's saying or get him to slip up. And so they're asking him a lot of different questions, uh, some of them about political hot-button issues of the day, some of them about theological debates, arguments within the people of God. And, uh, but now someone comes along and asks him a very sincere question. 
You can tell it's sincere because Jesus gives a very straightforward answer. All the, the previous questions leading up to this, Jesus either responded by asking a question in return or turning it around to get at something else because he knew people were just playing games. But this is a really sincere question. Starting in verse 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Such a great question. We have our own share these days of hot-button political issues or theological debates within the church, and sometimes we need a clarifying question like this, like, okay, well, out of all the stuff, all the things we ought to be concerned about, what is most important? What matters? In this case, it's a, a teacher of the law asking of all the commandments, and this person would have known there are 613 different commandments in the Hebrew Scriptures in the Old Testament, and there were a whole bunch of other commandments and regulations that have been added on by various traditions. So cut and through, like, out of all that stuff, Jesus, what is most important? And he answers with these two commands, to love God, to love your neighbor. Next week, we'll talk about loving our neighbor. I don't want to steal Pastor Lou's thunder by getting too into it, but you can see here the two are actually very inseparable. You can't have one without the other. But I'll focus this week on the call to love God that's at the heart of worship. Um, one thing about the heart of worship is where Jesus begins here, actually, with the, the Jewish Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is recited by faithful, believing Jewish people to this day. Um, and it highlights the fact that there, there is one God, that he is to be supreme and the only God in our lives. And at the heart of worship really is this, that there is one God in our lives. One God who gets our allegiance, who gets our affection, who is first place, first love, first authority in our lives. Jesus was going back to the book of Deuteronomy when Moses first said this, and when he said it, it was a very radical thing to say in that time and place, because it was spoken into a totally polytheistic world. There many different deities. You had yours, I had mine, they had theirs, and it was fine to mix and match, have as many as you want, really, and to, to declare that there's one God, actually, who, who made everything and who rules over everything was a radical thing to say, and it still is a radical thing to say. And we still live in a pretty polytheistic world, I think. Maybe um, it's not so much we worship lots of different deities, but, man, we have a lot of things that compete with God for first place in our lives. And anything that does that really is an idol, in a sense. Anything that we would put before God to give our affection to, to give our allegiance to, alongside or, or above God, is an idol, whether that be a, a relationship or a status, material things, a substance, uh, an identity marker, a nation, whatever the case may be. Anything that we would give our allegiance and our affection to above God or alongside God is an idol. And Jesus calls us here to the heart of worship, which is a life centered around one God, a life lived as if there really is one God who is first and foremost in our lives and who owns everything and all of who we are. So he calls this uh, teacher to that. And then this command, love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The proper response to this reality of there being one God in our lives is not necessarily just to think that or agree with that in theory, conceptually, or or to believe it, but to love this God. Because God is not an idea or a, a conception, not a concept. God is a being, and the, the response to this being is one of love. We're to love God with all of who we are, the totality of who we are. This word all is repeated with everyone, all your heart, all your soul, and so on. The, the wholeness, everything about us to love God. And that goes way beyond what we do for an hour plus on a Sunday morning. It, it's our whole lives. This command that Jesus brings up, it highlights four parts of ourselves, kind of to embrace every facet of who we are. Our heart, for example, the the Greek word is cardia. Uh, We think heart, we think kind of love and and sentimental kind of things, feelings. It's part of that, but, but so much more. The heart that he's talking about here is the very center of who we are, the center of our being out of which we do everything. It includes our emotions, includes our passions, includes also our desires, our will, our decision-making, the center out of which we, we do anything that we do, our heart. And again, that does include our emotions. I remember when I first came to faith in Jesus, I was a college student, and I was in settings where kind of kind of like this. We had this sort of worship music. People were on guitars. The words were up there. I saw people raising their hands for the first time. I thought that was kind of strange. But um, I also found myself getting strangely moved and emotional in that space. I didn't really know why at first. Um, I didn't grow up in the most emotionally expressive home, and I'm a a product of that. can be kind of stoic, but there was something about being in a a worship space like that that was just making me cry every time. And I've heard other people share that too. It's kind of common to to kind of walk into a space like this and, and be sort of moved or emotional, not even necessarily know why. And then the more I came to understand about Jesus and his love and his grace and mercy towards me, and we'd sing songs about that. It was, I mean, it was just waterworks, like, every time. It became kind of a joke among my friends. Like, worship with, with all the feels. And <laughs> it was cool, though. God was opening up a part of my heart that had been kind of closed off or untapped and teaching me to love him with all my heart, with kind of my emotional life, my feelings. Loving God with all my heart has gone far beyond that, though. And as I've, as I've grown, uh, often what it means is, is loving God by just obeying what he says to do in my life. And that's not always mushy or sentimental. Sometimes I do cry at that too, but it's more as I realize I need to lay down my own ambitions, my own plans, the things that I'd been counting on to do things God's way rather than my way. I'm learning to love God with all my heart. We're also called to love God with all our soul. The Greek word suke here is where we get psyche from, kind of our, our personality, our soul is sort of our being, our personhood, our, our life. Uh, we're more as people than just our physical, material makeup. We have souls. I see this in my nephews. I have two nephews who are identical twins, and I mean identical, like the exact same genetic package. And when they were babies, they were so 
alike, my sister, even their mom, had to paint one of their toenails just to keep her from getting mixed up, which was which, because I mean, even she couldn't tell. They're like exactly the same physically. And as they've grown up, they still get easily confused for each other, but they're different people. They each have a soul. They've got a personality that's emerging. They've got likes and dislikes that vary from one another. They've got passions. They've got quirks, ways to relate and interact with them that are, that are different, that are unique, that kind of make them the person they are. And we all have a soul. We all have a personhood. You have stuff that makes you, you. And we're called to love God with all our soul. Sometimes we take our uniqueness as a way to kind of worship ourselves, like, oh, look how special I am because I'm not like you. Well, if I'm not like you, it's maybe so that you can see me love God in a way that you, you know, maybe don't do yourself. And so it's really about being unique, being special, is really we're specially made to love God in different ways. Love God with all your soul. We're to love God with all of our mind as well. This is our, our reasoning, our understanding, our, our thinking, our processing of things in our heads. Loving God with your mind. I used to wonder, like, well, does that mean I just got to, like, think thoughts about God all day long? I just sit there and think about God and, like, mem- meditate on Bible verses? Like, think, I don't know. Um, it, there is a place for that, for practices where we kind of do intentionally think about Scripture and, and meditate on God. But I think, in some ways, loving God with our minds often means using them, just using the minds that God has given us. Part of what it means to bear His image in the world is to have minds, to have these faculties to reason and to think. And you've been given one. We've all been given a mind to use, and we can love God by doing that. I was thinking of our friend Andy Trapp. I was going to embarrass him, but he's actually teaching in our Journey Kids program today. He's not here, but he's a professor at WPI and a part of this church, and man, does he have a brilliant mind. He is now doing some great work. He just got a grant with another professor to, to do some work using advanced algorithms to fight human trafficking on a like meta-systemic level, and he's also doing work with refugee resettlement, trying to help resources be allocated in the best possible way. Now, a lot of us have big hearts, and we like to help in these areas kind of on the ground level, but man, people need to be able to look at it at, at that level to, so that it's done as well as it possibly can. And, and Andy sees that this is great kingdom work that God has called him to, that God has put him in a place to do. And I'm so grateful for that. Now, Andy didn't get to this place, Joe, though, just by sitting around thinking about God all day. I mean, he has spent so many hours, more than he can probably, well, he can count them, but more than I can count, thinking about math. I mean, he has thought so much about math, devoted his mind to stewarding what God has put in him to become really proficient at math so that he can use these advanced algorithms to do work that is so necessary that so few of us could ever even dream of doing. Because we don't have Andy's mind, most of us. I find my sixth grader's math homework hard enough (laughs) as it is. But Andy's called to love God with his mind. I'm called to love God with my mind. I kind of have a mind for the Bible, actually, so I do spend a disproportionate amount of time kind of in Scripture, trying to understand what it says to unpack in order to, to teach here. And you've got a mind that God has given you, too. Part of loving God with it is just use it, put it into practice. 
See what God does with it, with a heart to love him with your mind. Also, I mean, it doesn't mean just necessarily thinking about or consuming only Christian materials, only Christian books and, and media and that sort of thing. Part of loving God with our mind is to, to read a lot of things, to read the news, to engage with pop culture and current events, and to think about it in a God-honoring way. To, to read and take things in and to ask God, how are you thinking about this? How, ought, how can I love you by, by responding to what I'm reading and understanding here? Help me to understand as you would understand it, to love God with our minds in that way. And we're to love God with all our strength, our ability, our power, our force, our capacity to function. And again, this, this really varies from person to person. We're not called to love God with somebody else's strength, to look at them and go, oh, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm nothing here because I can't, I'm not as strong as they are. Or, or to revel in our own strength and think that it's something that's great about us. Our strength is given to us to love God wherever we are, not just by serving in church, although, you know, we love all the ways that people volunteer and, and help out to make this church run, but our strength is exercised in a whole bunch of different ways and capacities that have been given to us and resources and places God has put us all throughout this city and region where we exercise our strength and we're to, to ask God, how do I love you in that by doing what you've given me the capacity to do? So to love God with all of who we are, the totality of who we are, this leaves nothing out, heart, soul, mind, strength. But one other thing I want to note about the heart of worship is that all of this call, all of this love that God wants from us is really in response to his love for us. This call, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This harkens back to the fact that God had entered into relationship with his people. All the commands that he gave happened after he had delivered his people from bondage, called them to himself, set them free, and made them a people, and then he gives them all these commands. The, the call to love God is not something we muster up, manufacture ourselves. It's not a man-made thing. We love God because he loved us first. I want to read this together, actually. Read this with me. It's from 1 John. It will be on the screen. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Really important to know. We... We love a God in response to him loving us first. We don't try to generate it ourselves. Worship actually was God's idea, and it's God's initiative, and it's God who's brought us here. So, you know, whatever it is that you come here wanting, and I, you must want something at some level, you, you got yourself here this morning, whatever it is you're looking for, know this, that God wants you here. He wants you here. He wanted you here first before you wanted to be here. And he's got you here because he wants something for you here. And he wants something from you and of you. Worship originates with God. It's all his idea. And it's all his initiative. He loved us first and he calls us here. And so the question to ask when you come to worship in this sense is not so much, well, what am I going to get out of it? Did I like it? Did it move me? This, that, or the other. But actually, God, why did you bring me here? Why do you want me here? What do you have for me here, and what do you want of me, from me? That's a heart of worship that asks that and seeks that from God. He wants you here. So I hope we can see that worship is much bigger than gathering and coming to church, much bigger than singing songs. It's our whole life lived in response to a God who loves us and loving him in return.
So you might ask, well, then why should I come to church? Can I just love God doing whatever I do, wherever I do it? Can I love God while lying in bed, hitting snooze and sleeping in? Can I love God eating a nice leisurely brunch, maybe watching football? Can I, can I just love God catching up on the chores and housework that I got, made myself too busy to get to the rest of the week? Or doing whatever it is I want to do and just kind of love God while doing it? Well, no. <laughs> Again, worship is God's idea and God actually has in mind what he wants it to look like, and a key part of it is gathering regularly in a community of people to worship in a corporate and public way. He wants that. That is not all of a life of worship, but it is a vital part of a life of worship. You can't really have all of a life of worship God wants for you without regularly gathering in a community of people to worship him in a public and corporate way. So we're really committed to that here at the journey. This campus, Quinsig Village, we gather in these spaces to worship in particular ways and invite you to, to join in. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the what of worship, what we do here. And when I say worship in this sense, the what of worship, I do mean kind of corporate public gatherings for worship, being here, the what of worship. God has some things in mind that he actually kind of Ask of his people. We're going to turn quickly to Colossians chapter 3. If you're following along, it's page 834 in the Pew Bibles. This is not an exhaustive list of the things that God says in Scripture that ought to mark the coming together of his people, but this is some things for the early church, the early believers, that were to kind of mark their life together, their corporate worship gatherings. I'm going to start in verse 15, chapter 3. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I'm just going to highlight five things that are mentioned right here as things that ought to mark the coming together of God's people and have marked the coming together of God's people through all generations. That Sometimes it's taken different forms and formats through different ages and cultures and, and whatnot, but these things generally mark the coming together of God's people, and we strive for them here at the journey. One, just being together as one body, as one body you were called to peace. Just simply our gathering and being in the same space and relating to each other and interacting with one another is an act of worship and loving God. It's a reflection of the gospel. The gospel does not just reconcile us to God. It reconciles people to one another. And so our actually physically being in the same space in community is, honors God. People who otherwise throughout the week through circumstance or choice would never interact with each other. Different cultures, different ages, generations, different neighborhoods that we live in and, and spaces of work that we inhabit. You know, we didn't all vote the same on Tuesday, but, but here we are, we're together, and God's drawn us together because he reconciles a people to one another. That is a demonstration of the gospel that we cannot live out by ourselves. So just simply coming here and being together in space with people that God has drawn together, that's an act of worship. So we do that. We get together every week. Second, there's a call to be thankful. 
to thank God. We try to express thanks to God through the singing, through our prayers sometimes, but we have space every week to be thankful to God. In some cases, for what he's doing in our lives currently, but in a lot of ways, we thank God for ultimately what he's done for us in Jesus every week. We sang about it in the first song. This is amazing grace that Jesus would lay down his life for us. You know, whether you had a great week or a really horrific one, that's true no matter what. There is something for you to be thankful for, profoundly thankful for, and for us to thank God for together that he laid down his life for us. If we've got other things immediate in the meantime to thank him for, awesome. But if not, we've always got a reason to gather and be thankful. And we need to do that regularly. Third, we come together to put the gospel before us, to, to celebrate the gospel. So let the message of Christ dwell among you. It's in our songs. It's in the reading of Scripture. It's in the taking of communion, which we did last week. We do that regularly. Jesus commanded us to remember, commemorate that he poured out his blood, that his body was broken as a sacrifice for us. We remember that regularly. We keep coming back to this gospel good news, this message of salvation. We do that regularly, corporately, together on a regular basis. Fourth, there's teaching. So to teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. You know, this scripture was written a long time ago. It takes teaching. It takes work to apply it to our lives now, to understand, like, what is in here? What is this saying? And then what does it have to do with life in 21st century Worcester County? So we take the teaching of God's word really seriously. We devote a fair amount of time to it. Those of us who teach prepare with a lot of prayer uh, for you and with a lot of study of the word to try to bridge those worlds as best we can. Teaching has always been a component of God's people gathering together. Know that we take it really seriously. And we invite you to come and be taught. Finally, there's this element of hymns, psalms, and spiritual songs. Music. I mean, for whatever reason, God just really digs music. I mean, he's just into it. It has always been a hallmark of God's people gathering together, no matter where. Maybe it's such a universal thing. I mean, every culture, every time and place has music that people like, and God, God likes it. And Scripture is filled with commandments to make music. The Old Testament is filled with commands. Raise your voice. Sing. You got a voice? Use it. Sing to God. You got an instrument? Use it. Whatever it happens to be, whether it's a ram horn or a, a lyre or a lute or a trumpet, you got cymbals? Clang the cymbals. You got a drum? Hit the drum. Todd, you got a Gibson electric guitar? Play it. You know? Make music. God, God's really into it. I, I don't you know, fully know why. Maybe because he, he loves beauty and artistry. He's creative. I think just to engage our whole personhood, not just cerebrally, but, but through, through singing and, and all of that connects with us. But we're commanded to, to make music together, and so we do. And our worship team takes it really, really seriously. And it may not be the type of music that you would have on your own playlist necessarily, but that's not the point. Good worship is not... You know, did it, did it move me? Did I, do I like it? Does it sound like what I like to listen to? If, it's, if it honors Jesus and makes music that, that celebrates him, then it's, it's good worship. I think we got good worship here under, under that definition. So that's kind of the what. And, and God requires these things really of his people. And so we gather together to do these things together in community.
I want to take a little bit, uh, actually, uh, the culmination of this verse, though, goes so far beyond it. Verse 17, whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do, so that includes pretty much everything. Doesn't leave every, anything out. Whatever we do is actually to be worship, a life of loving God, a life of worship. So again, gathering here is not the totality of a life of worship. It's, it's everything that we do, the other six days and 22 and a half hours of our week. But it's a vital part. Ideally, our worship gatherings like this ought to be the culmination of a week filled with worshiping God. And it ought to be a sending point, a launching point that propels us forward into a life of loving God in every place that he sends us throughout the week. So that's the what. I want to talk a little bit in the time we have left about the why. The why of gathering for worship like this. One more scripture to turn to in Hebrews chapter 10. It's on page 851 if you're in the Pew Bibles. The letter of Hebrews in the New Testament was written to a people who'd, for whatever reason, gotten a little out of the habit of gathering together to worship. A little lethargic, maybe, a little discouraged, disheartened. They didn't have some of the same particular barriers to gathering like this that we do, but there were barriers. It seems like there always have been. And the need to remind people why. Why do we do this? Why do we gather like this to worship God? So in chapter 10, we'll start in verse 19, the author says this. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain, that is, his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Throughout this passage, there's this phrase, let us, let us do this. It's a, a first-person plural imperative, like, let's. If you're like me and you watch a lot of sports these days, you may notice that athletes everywhere all the time just seem to be shouting, let's go! Maybe they're happy, maybe they're angry, maybe they're talking to somebody, maybe to no one in particular, but it's just constant, like, let's go, let's go! That's essentially what the author of Hebrews is saying here to the people he's writing to. And that is essentially what I, as a fellow member of this journey with Jesus, am saying to you. Like, hey, let's go to church every week. <laughs> let's keep going. Let's keep gathering. Why? There's four reasons I see here. One, to draw near to God. Draw near to God. I mean, come on. Like, you can draw near to God. Let's not take that for granted. The author highlights how Jesus like, moved heaven and earth to make that possible, how he sacrificed his life to make that possible. All that he did 
to demonstrate his love for us so that God doesn't have to be far off and mysterious and scary, but someone we can draw near to. We can draw near to God. We do that here. This is a space you can draw near to God, so let's go. God is near and approachable, and we can draw near. Second, we we gather together to hold on to the hope that we profess. I like that image. We hold on to hope as if we could we could lose it somehow. There's so much trying to rip hope out of our hands or rip us away from hope. And man, there is so much in this world and so much in our lives that is an enemy of hope that beats us down, that tries to get us to give in to despair, discouragement, to make us despondent, to make us hopeless, to give up or think there's no point or that it's not really leading anywhere. Guys, we are a people of hope. Those of us who love God, who worship God, are people of hope. We know the story is actually leading somewhere, that there is a future that God has for us that's good, a future he has for this world that is good and beautiful when he comes to make things new. So much is an enemy of hope. One of the greatest enemies of hope in this world is isolation and being alone. It's a lot easier to be a hopeful person when you're surrounded by other people who have hope, when you're in community. That's why we gather together So we don't have to muster up our own hope day after day, but we can remind ourselves and be in a community who are a people of hope. To not give in to despair, to not give in to discouragement, to not be isolated and cut off, but to be a people who keep going towards the future that God has for us. Third, we gather to encourage one another towards love and good deeds. We spur one another on, the passage says. It's really hard to spur yourself on to love and good deeds day after day. You get tired. You lose sight of the fact that that's even a thing to do because you're so consumed with your own needs and wants. We're selfish people inherently. It's hard to spur ourselves on. We're here to spur each other on to love and good deeds. We hope as you make weekly worship a habit that you don't just come away inspired. You don't just have a little spiritual high in the midst of your week. You don't just come away with more knowledge and insight and understanding, but that you are spurred on to love God in all that you do. And that means love, that means good deeds. We hope this is a a journey in which you'll become more and more the person that God has called you to be in the places where he's placed you. So we encourage one another. And finally, we gather together to keep an eternal perspective. It says, don't give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. This day being referred to here is A day that is coming. It's a day when Jesus will return to this earth to be supreme, to be the center of everything, to be worshipped, to be the judge of the living and the dead, and to make all things new. That day is approaching. We don't know when that day is going to come exactly, and, and you don't. The one thing Jesus said about when is that nobody knows when. So if someone tells you when, don't believe them. But the one thing we know about when this day is coming is this. It's sooner than it used to be. (laughs) Sooner than it was last week, sooner than it was yesterday, sooner than it was when we walked in here at 11, and it is ever sooner. It's approaching. It's coming. It's always closer. After the service last night, this little boy came up to me, David, and he goes, he must have been like eight or nine, he's like, well, well, no kidding, the day is approaching. I mean, isn't it obvious time moves forward? It doesn't move backwards. <laughs> it was like, no, duh. 
I, I'm like, you're right, David, but you know, it, it, it is obvious, but man, we just don't live that way much of the time, as if there's a day coming. We're just so consumed in the day-to-day and, and, and all that. There actually is a, a day approaching, and we, need, we gather together. That is our hope, to remind ourselves we are people with a destination in this world, and there is a future. There is a hope for God's people, and it's closer than it used to be, so all the more the reason to gather together to worship in community in a public way. So, let's go. Let's go to church. Let's go, let's gather, and let's be propelled out to every place God sends us to love him because what is the most important command out of all of them? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. May that mark us and characterize us as a people. In Jesus' name. Lord, thank you for gathering us here together. Thank you for all you did to make a way. It sometimes seems so trivial to just pray to you, to sing to you. It's an amazing thing, Lord, that you are this approachable. You are this approachable, and so we gather, we come near to you who, who made a way. And we pray, Lord, that it wouldn't just happen in this space, but that you would overcome whatever hesitancy we might have to making this a, a regular habit so that we could really worship in the way that you design and want us to. But we pray also that you would send us out of here as, as real worshipers who live a life filled with love for you that's reflected in all we do, how we act, how we think, how we feel, how we relate. Make us the people who love you, who are known for that, growing in love. Thank you, Lord, that you loved us first. We give, ourselves, we give you our lives in return. In Jesus' name, amen.